Welcome back to Never Alone. This is our last episode of season one, and we are sad that it's our last episode of season one. It flew by, but also very exciting that we have come this far. Mm -hmm. So today we are going to be doing a Q&A from a lot of listeners that have reached out with specific questions or general questions that they would like us to discuss. So it's kind of just going to be a casual Q&A today that me and Morgan will answer. Um, and after this episode, if you have any more questions about what we've gone over, we would love to hear more from you. So mm-hmm. please reach out. We also want to say that these answers that we're sharing today are purely from Morgan and I's experiences and perspectives. And we're very aware that depending on who you ask, you will get various answers. So these are just Morgan and I's opinions and perspectives, and we hope that they are helpful to you today. And um, we've kind of said that before in the podcast, but this is just coming from Morgan and I. But we'll go ahead and jump into question number one. So the first question is how to prepare for an embryo transfer. Very loaded question. <laughs> um And I think we have a lot of questions around IVF that probably deserve their own episodes. But to answer this now, I think, you know, most importantly, we're not doctors. So this is based on our own experience. But, you know, depending on your diagnosis, I think there are certain things that can be helpful specifically um, for your case. But more generally, what I've learned is, is like keeping your stress low and you're like taking care of your mental health, I think is the most important thing. Um, Which is a lot easier said than done. <laughs> yes. It's, a, I mean, it's a struggle and very like active practice. Um, but I think, you know, everyone might have different thoughts, but like at the end of the day, like it, it I think it's either going to work or it's not for the most part. Like there's just really not too much in your control. And, you know, for me, that meant this time specifically like counseling, walks, yoga, meditation, getting good sleep, um, journaling, acupuncture is something that I've really loved. And, that, you know, there is some data around this being helpful, but I, a caveat with like if it's not something that you find enjoyable or the cost is stressful, ditch it. Like it's for me, it was very relaxing. It was like me time. But I mean, if if that's not, don't just add something in like just because you think it might help your chances. Um, yeah, that's I a think. good way to put it. Yeah. Because for me, it was not, it brought more stress. Right. I did not enjoy acupuncture. It was not uh, like a massage as yeah. some people describe it. And so for me, I did not do it because it actually added stress. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think like knowing what helps you with your stress level. Um, I think too, like, uh, of course, like taking a quality prenatal and if there's supplements around your diagnosis, like I know there are specific supplements or treatments and procedures for certain diagnoses. Um, and, and I think there's a lot on the internet around like food and endocrine disruptors and things like that. And well, I do think that's important. We've talked about this a lot. It's like what <clears throat> finding the balance between it being helpful and adding more stress. So just comparing my own journey, like our first embryo transfer, I was very restrictive with eating healthy and not drinking. And I think 
like what I learned from that is that it actually added more stress. Um, so I think, of course, it's helpful to eat healthy and like limit excessive drinking. And it's helpful to have a glass of wine if that relaxes you and to not be restrictive um, in a way that adds more stress. Totally. And if you're not uh, familiar with an embryo transfer, they will give you the option to take a Valium before. Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of women, this it's, you know, it's a foreign, not a foreign object, but kind of like a foreign object going yeah. into your uterus. Mm-hmm. And so they want your uterus to be the most relaxed mm-hmm. it has ever been. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of women, that means taking a Valium before the embryo transfer. And so I think that's just another sign of like the doctors are really concerned mm-hmm. mostly about your stress level. Right. I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I always took the Valium. I mean, it's definitely you're you're anxious. Like it can be a sweet day, but yeah. it's also like there's a lot riding on that day. So again, if it's if taking medicine stresses you out, then you wouldn't want to opt in for that. But if you know, if you think it would help you, anything that's gonna help your stress, totally. I think is key. Yeah. Okay. So moving into our next question, what physical changes should you expect during treatments? So this is a great question, but it's also hard to answer because I feel like it really varies between person to person and also what medications you're on, what treatments you are doing. And so, you know, they could range from just like bloating, sore boobs, blue discharge (laughs) from estrogen, which is not fun Mm -hmm. and kind of disgusting, headaches, starting and stopping, of course, weight gain, dizziness, fatigue, you know, all your natural not natural, but all your normal symptoms that come with all of this, you can expect. Um, Some people have a heavier appetite. Some people lose their appetite. Um, Some people have bruising from the meds. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. So it really just varies from case to case and person to person. And um, from what we've gathered, you know, like the egg retrieval is extremely hard for some women and then also like the meds you take before a transfer is hard for women. Mm -hmm. So my opinion would be it really just varies. Yeah. I think, I mean, like for me, crazy enough, like the birth control is actually like one of the worst meds. I mean, I was on like the highest doses of a lot of the um, shots and like those didn't really affect me in the moment, but then like stopping them affected me. So like the starting and stopping was harder for me than like in the moment, if that makes sense. So I think what Madison said is true. It's very specific to the person. I do think like just like expecting kind of just overall, maybe just not feeling your best, like fatigue, headaches, almost just like your period on steroids. Yeah. I was just going to say in general, just expect to feel really crappy all the time. Yeah. Which is not encouraging. (laughs) No. (laughs) Crappy and whatever that means for your body. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So question number three is what do the different grading of embryos mean? So this is kind of a complicated one. It's, I feel like, better absorbed visually. um, And it can vary, vary clinic by clinic. But generally speaking, there is um, first the day of the embryo. So they, you know, will either let the embryo develop until day five, day six, or day seven for a frozen embryo transfer. And for a fresh embryo embryo transfer, most of the time it's day three, sometimes it's day five. 
And so what that means is how many days they're letting the embryo actually develop. So that's the first piece. And then the second piece is, um, and this is where it sometimes varies, but for my clinic specifically, and I think Madison's too, it's there's like a number associated with the with the embryo. And I'm kind of going to be talking mostly about day five embryos. I think this kind of applies to all, but day five is just what what I have the most experience. Day five, day six, day seven. So the number examples like number one through five, it explains how developed the cells are. So a five would mean that like the cells are actually starting to hatch. And I can't speak to like whether this is good or bad, but what what my doctor has shared is like a three, for example, is not yet hatched and it may never hatch. Mm-hmm. So like generally speaking, it is better to have, you know, an embryo that's starting to hatch or is hatching. There's just a better chance of it breaking through that cell wall. Yes. My doctor said the same thing. Okay. They were very excited when they saw it hatch. Yeah. So and then there's two more. So we talked about the day. We talked about the number. Then there's also two letters, and those grade one letter grades the cells that actually create the baby, and that's usually the first letter. And then the second letter is the cells that create the placenta. And I think again, this this part can vary a little bit from clinic to clinic. So like, my clinic doesn't have anything below a B. Whereas like some clinics have a C grading. So A would be like ideal and B would be good, but not ideal. And then I think if, you know, if there's a clinic that also has C, it's like maybe that's like less than ideal, but Mm -hmm. but like they still feel that it's good enough to consider. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I think the biggest thing to know about that, I know that's kind of complicated, is that sometimes like a perfect embryo fails. And totally. Some, and a perfect, yeah. tell everybody Morgan, yeah. a perfect embryo would be, for those listening. Yes. A, I think a day five, five AA yeah. um, would be like ideal. Yeah. So um, even if you're, we're telling you, even if you get a five AA embryo, that does not mean that you will have a live child. Right. <laughs> right. And I think it's like, it's fantastic news. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, there's five AA embryos that if you do end up doing genetic testing, come back abnormal. So it's yeah. like the grading doesn't mean everything. And then I think th- to like day six is and day seven, like the farther along you get, it, it it's like it took that embryo a little bit longer to develop. I mean, we are living son is a day six embryo. Whereas like if you start Googling that, it's like, the chances are like 50% less and this and that. And like day seven, I think drops down to 30%. So like there's all these statistics and I think it's just very specific to what ends up happening in your body. So maybe like don't get too hung up on the grading because even ones that maybe seem like not ideal can end up becoming like a perfect baby and the ones that are perfect still fail. Yeah. And I think your doctor will do a good job to explain the grading to you personally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with all of ours, our doctor was very honest and hopefully you will have an honest doctor, but he would always be like, this is a really good embryo or like, this is decent. Mm -hmm. You know, like he was pretty blunt in his wording of our grading, which was nice to hear. Yeah. I think it's great to have that because if there, if every 
everyone's like, oh, this is such a great embryo. And then you're kind of like crushed. Yeah. But I think just keep in mind, like Googling this is really hard because every clinic does. I mean, generally, I think what we shared is true, but every clinic does have like a little bit of variation. So ask your clinic to send you their like grading rubric, if you will. Yeah, that's great. Okay, moving into the next question, what should you look for when picking a doctor or clinic? So we would say for this question, it kind of is based on your goals, I guess I would say, and what you're looking for. So if for some reason, you know, distance is big for you, you know, you don't want to be driving 45 minutes to an hour to your clinic, you know, we would say that's a big decision to make. Pick the clinic that is closest to where you live. And I think Morgan and I would both say that's actually an important decision because as we've said in previous episodes, you live at the doctor, Mm -hmm. you go a lot. Mm -hmm. And so distance kind of is a key factor. And then we would also say cost is another key factor. So seeing if clinics take certain insurance that you have, or they have guarantee programs or payment programs, you know, you can reach out to certain clinics and see what they cover, what they don't cover, and then what programs they have. So that's another thing to consider. And then also a doctor. So if for some reason you have been recommended by a friend or your OB or um, a group or researching and you are, you know, just set on this one doctor because you just trust them from hearing from others, or maybe you've even done your own research. Me and my husband actually did a ton of research. Well, he did. (laughs) He's a big researcher. He did a ton of research before we even started this journey on just like clinics and doctors and it's a big deep dive, Mm -hmm. but um, you can do your own research to find out statistics. They're all rated. Not Mm -hmm. to say that, you know, the top clinic and doctor is going to give you a specific outcome. We're not saying that, but there are some truths to, Mm -hmm. you know, the ratings. Mm -hmm. So that would be another consideration. And then just, you know, hearing from other referrals, like I said, you know, Facebook groups or other people's experiences through friends, which clinics and doctors they have enjoyed and kind of clicked with. And we would also like to add that just because you picked a certain clinic or a doctor doesn't mean that you need to stay with them your whole journey. Mm -hmm. There's been certain scenarios to where you might need to switch doctors because of something that happened, or you might need to switch clinics or we, I mean, I know several people who have done both. Mm -hmm. They've switched doctors and switched clinics and that's not a bad thing. It's a little frustrating, I would say. So Mm -hmm. I get that that can be frustrating, but in certain scenarios, you know, it might be helpful and you don't know what you don't know. So kind of, you kind of, it's back to the trial and error. Like Mm -hmm. you kind of just have to pick one and try it and Mm -hmm. see if it works and Mm -hmm. see if you like your doctor and y'all are a good fit. Mm -hmm. And if for some reason it's not working, that's okay. You can find another one. Yeah. I think it's um, just one thing to add is like, you almost don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. Similar to Madison, like did a ton of research and I had my heart set on this one doctor and I've actually gotten to see her because she's at our clinic. But like I've shared before, we got in from a cancellation with our doctor and she has been like the perfect fit, but I wouldn't have known that at the time. So she's, she's a bit younger and I actually like really value that because I just think her perspective is like fresher and 
she's more like up to date on a lot of the more recent studies. Um, and this is obviously like a field that's changing a lot. And like, so that's important to me, but I don't think I would have known that I wouldn't have sought her out. Um, if totally. that makes sense. So to your point about like the trial and error or, or the fact that like her bedside manner is like fantastic. Like that's really important to me. Whereas like your doctor is like very straightforward and I know that's really important to you. Yeah. So we, and we actually did switch doctors. So we've been at the same clinic this whole time, but it, nothing major happened, but we ended up switching doctors, uh, for a few reasons. And the first doctor we saw had the best bedside manner ever was lovely, have nothing bad to say about him. My experience was fantastic. Um, but we ended up seeing another doctor in the same clinic and his bedside manner, I would say is very poor. <laughs> He's just very blunt, honest, not a lot of like feelings or emotions, yeah. but honestly, that's kind of what we needed at the time. Right. And it's worked out great. Like we just go into it knowing, you know, like he's going to say something that might offend us. Right. And like I would never be able to, like I would be crying. Yeah. So <laughs> I think you just end up kind of finding the person that matches with you in that, in your point of the journey. Yeah. Um, okay. So our next question would be male factor. So we're going to kind of talk about a few things about male factor and I'll let Morgan kind of take this one over. Yeah. So like, what is male factor? What does low motility mean? What does low morphology mean? Um, it's interesting. So actually 50% of infertility is male factor. I think it's just not as widely discussed. And what low, so kind of like within a semen analysis, there's a few things that that test is looking for. And it's looking for like the total amount of sperm. So if you have like super low counts, that can be an issue. But um, specific question was around motility and morphology. And those are two of the factors that they're looking for. And so morphology is the shape. And this is important because it's like, it needs to be in good condition. Um, so it's kind of looking at the actual like form, if you will, whereas motility is how they're moving. Also important, like getting to the right place if they're super slow. Um, again, this is kind of like where fertility treatments would come into play. So having like super low counts or having morphology that is like less than ideal, those are two factors that make you not a great candidate for IUI. Now, if you have good counts and maybe like, you know, they're slower, that I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I think like that could, you could still be an option. It could still be an option. But I think like each factor of male factor infertility <laughs> plays a part in like whether or not you're a good candidate for IUI or in specific cases, like with IVF, ICSI. So that is, you know, in the traditional IVF process, they let the sperm and the egg meet naturally. Whereas with ICSI, they actually like inject the best looking sperm into the egg. So again, if you don't have like a lot that look good, the embryologist or the, I think it's the embryologist, mm -hmm. they'll actually like find the best one. So all of this is to say that like if your husband has male factor and you're feeling like really discouraged, they really only need like 10 of millions to look good, to be moving mm -hmm. properly and what have you. So I will say that I think 
moving straight into IVF is usually the answer when it comes to male factor. Yeah. I think that's great. Um, one other question we got was just around all of the experts and supplements online. So, I mean, are these helpful? What's the question? So I think this goes back to it's person by person. You know, Mm -hmm. if you feel like a supplement will be beneficial to either your body or your mental state, then we would say take it. Yeah. As long you obviously need to go over everything with your doctor and make sure it's okay for you to take. But if your doctor says it's fine to take, we would say take it. Yeah. There is a lot of stuff online that says, you know, this will improve so-and-so or this will help such and such. And, you know, not all of that is true. Mm -hmm. Some of it might be, but you have to be careful with, you know, infertility and IVF becoming so monetized. Yes, monetized that it's just people are out there trying to sell you things. And so we would say just be cautious. Yeah. But for the most part, we would just say follow what your doctor prescribes. Yeah. I think like Madison said, a lot of it's about money and Mm -hmm. like there's all these experts out there and what have you. And um, one like word of caution is there's, there are some supplements, um, meant to help with fertility. And I think they can if you have like minor issues, but um, it's really important to share with your doctor if you're taking any of these, like even if they're just herbal supplements, because I was on one and my doctor was like, you need to get off that right away. Like that messes with the medicine that we're going to have you on. So I think just making sure that you tell your doctor because a lot of them can like contradict each other. Yes, totally. Okay. Next question. Why do so many people travel across the country to see a specific doctor or go to a specific clinic? Yes. So this could probably seem very bizarre to people (laughs) when you hear that somebody living, you know, in Alabama traveled to Denver to go see a doctor. And from what we have heard and gathered that if you do live in, say, you know, a more rural town or you live in a state or city that doesn't necessarily have great options for clinics, then you are traveling somewhere. And so if you have to travel, you might as well find the best clinic out there there is, or the the highest rating, you know, or the top doctor or what have you. So that's kind of our reason for why people do that. And we wouldn't say that it's bad, you know, like if you have the funds to do it, if you have the time to do it, um, if you think it's best for you and your husband and you feel most confident in this clinic and doctor, then we would say, yeah, travel. But if you feel like it's going to be more of a strain on your marriage or your family or your finances, Mm -hmm. because you do spend so much time and so much money that it would hinder, then we would say probably not the best decision. Yeah. And I think when you do go to a clinic across the country like that, you usually stay for an extended period of time. So yeah. I think it's either like a couple weeks or a month at a time. So, yeah, because you have to go into the clinic every day right? at some points of mm-hmm. your journey, as mm-hmm. we've said previously. So, yeah. So the next question is, what do you know about endometriosis? Well, <clears throat> neither of us have actually struggled with endometriosis. So I phoned a friend who um, has endometriosis and is fairly educated on the topic. The kind of quick version of what it means is that tissue, it's tissue that grows where it's not supposed to. 
And sometimes this can mean that you have no symptoms, even um, other than maybe like heavy periods. But some people have painful sex or like super long periods. Infertility is definitely linked to uh, endometriosis. And that's because it can affect the eggs, the tissue that's growing, you know, like outside of where it's supposed to or implantation. So if it's you know, if there's scar tissue in the uterine lining, that would be like a lesser than ideal environment for the embryo to implant. And there are there are lots of different procedures, like surgeries that can clean out the tissue. There are different medications um, that can help suppress the endometriosis. So there certainly are a lot of options. My friend had mentioned specifically an, a quiz. It's called the Nezhat, N-E-Z-H-A-T, endometriosis app that might be a good, if you are feeling like, oh, okay, like I think I might have this or my doctor mentioned I might have it, um, just has like a little quiz to see if you are at risk. And she had shared that it was pretty accurate um, in her findings. So that's kind of like the high level overview, although I'm sure it's more nuanced than that. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. A very difficult question that we were asked um, is how you stay encouraged when the big fat positive or BFP just isn't there. Yeah, this is a really hard one. We would say probably the first thing is just managing your expectations, which is also very challenging, but just, you know, knowing that it might not be as straightforward as you had hoped or dreamed and maybe expecting that it might take a little bit longer than you thought from what we have found. And we've kind of said this in a previous question is, you know, journaling is really helpful just to kind of get your thoughts on a page and it's they they've actually done studies that say whatever's in your mind if you put it to paper with a pen it's very therapeutic and so even if you would say you're not a journaler we would encourage you to maybe every now and then pull out a piece of paper and just write down all that your thoughts that you're having in the day because it is um, therapeutic and it's really good for you and then we'd also say finding something that helps so whatever outlet that means you know whether that's exercise hanging out with friends, you know, doing something with your husband, a hobby that you enjoy, just really focusing on an outlet that you think would help you during this time. And then we would also just say maybe reframing your timeline. So everything that you hoped and dreamed, you know, to be pregnant by this time or to have a baby by this date, you know, unfortunately we would say maybe start viewing your timeline a little different which is challenging too. But this is this is a hard one because I know it sounds really discouraging. We know it's really mentally taxing to get a big fat negative every single month and it's just discouraging. So we would say those are the tips that we have found helpful. But yeah, this is a really sad one because nobody likes to get a negative test every single month. Mm-mm. So our next question is, what does insurance cover? Yeah, so <clears throat> kind of going to group this with um, the affording it piece too. But essentially with insurance, it's very specific to your insurance. I think 
the insurance industry is making a lot of strides to try to cover more. My husband's company, like for the first time ever, his insurance does offer some benefits. Um, my company in the past gave more of like a stipend. So I think a, a lot of employers are um, starting to offer benefits. However, like almost never is is everything covered. And almost never is the medication covered in what I've found from myself and others. So I think it's just even if you do have like fantastic coverage, knowing that the medications, which are almost as much as the treatments themselves, like is usually something that you'll have to pay out of pocket. So um, kind of just like managing expectations there. Which I think I don't know if this was I don't know if that was a shock to you, but yeah. that was a shock to me is yeah. finding out that the medications did cost just as much as the process itself. Yeah, that was a huge shock. I remember like my clinic walking through the because I mean they do there are like financial advisors at every clinic to make sure you understand all the fees, and I remember being like, okay, like this my stipend is just going to cover like one round. And they and they said like okay anesthesia is not covered, which is you know not too much. It, and then the medication's not covered. And I was like okay like that's fine. Like surely like the medication you know only ever the only other medications I'd ever bought were like less than a hundred dollars. So in this case, most of them are thousands. Yeah. Um. So yes, I was very shocked. And I think that my clinic did give a range. And I think we were kind of like towards the higher end of the range. It does depend like what medications you're on and like what doses you're on, but definitely a shock um, about how much they are. And kind of on that note, like how you afford it in general, I think, again, is a a hard question and very specific to your situation, but um, it is very expensive and it adds stress no matter like no matter what your situation is i think even if you have all the money in the world there's like this level of anger that you're spending it on this even though it can bring you something wonderful like mm-hmm. it's it's not a fun thing to be spending money on so kind of going back to like it depends what insurance coverage you have but 9 out of 10 times you're still going to have your own expenses and i think there's just different ways to get creative and like for us personally, we we did borrow money from family and, you know, paid them back. But, you know, we just at the time needed assistance. And there are financing programs specific to IVF. Usually they do have like pretty hefty interest rates. But I think it's also just knowing that like this is a season, right? Like almost like if you have student loans or like debt in that way, it's like it's for a good cause. Like you're not going out and like buying a new car just because you want it or like, you know, spending money frivolously like this is to grow your family. So even if it is like putting you in a situation that maybe is less than ideal, I think like just accepting that to a degree um, and knowing that it's for a season. But some of the ways that people have gotten creative that I've heard of is like raising money through your church starting fundraisers or like side businesses. Yeah, I've heard of several people who, you know, will start side businesses whereas that's like making bracelets and mm-hmm. selling the bracelets or they um, design their own t-shirt 
and sell t-shirts to anybody that they know. And I think that's also a cool way to get people involved where they can walk alongside you during this journey. So if you're willing, which I know that also brings on challenges, if you're not willing to share your journey with others and you want to keep it more private, then of course you probably don't want to go down that route of reaching out to others with like a GoFundMe page or something. But that is an option if you need to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is very generic advice, but it's just like making decisions to help help you afford it, right? So like maybe that means, you know, like actually my husband and I, like we, you know, we did borrow money and then we had to make other decisions. Like we shared a car or we, you know, had to cut back during that time period. And I think it's just like, this is the forefront of what you're doing. Um, and you're you're obviously this committed to moving forward. I think like a part of it is just like a level of, of acceptance. Yeah. And we mentioned there's financing programs specific to IVF and like through your clinic, but there also are rebate programs for a lot of the medications. And while it's incredibly time consuming to shop around different pharmacies, it can be very beneficial. So whether that means like asking for the generic version or a different version. Um, A personal example is one of the medications that I needed. It was going to be $9,000 and a different brand, but it was the same medication was like $3,000. So if you don't, you really do have to like ask around, like, is there an alternative? Your doctor will have to like approve it. They're not just going to be like, oh, sure, you can have this other medication. So there's like a lot of steps, but I think just trying to be savvy, asking if there's any rebates, any generic versions is helpful. Yeah. And this would be an area where you kind of have to do all of the work because your doctor or your nurses will not give you all those options. No, they will give you your medication list and send it to the pharmacist and say, go pick up your meds. And, you know, if you're just sitting there thinking, oh, well, I have to do what they say, like, yes, you have to take the medicine that they recommend. But just like Morgan said, there are certain generic versions where you can reach out and find a cheaper version, but that has to be all of your doing. Yeah. And then the last question that we're going to answer today is how did we approach ethical decisions? Yes. So this is also a really hard question. And if you haven't listened to Erica's interview yet, she kind of touches on the ethical decision that her and her husband went through before they started IVF. But we would say this is just really unique to each couple individually. And it's something that you and your husband really need to spend probably a lot of time and thought uh, before making these decisions. You do have to make a lot of ethical decisions and weighty decisions before you can even start the process, as we've already said before. So that can be challenging (laughs) because you kind of just want to get started and go through the process, but then you're kind of like thrown with all of these big, heavy questions they put on you. So we would just say take time and really figure out what is best for your family. But I would also kind of say that I feel like personally that your journey kind of dictates what choices you make and what Mm. you have to make. Um, So depending on your scenario, you know, like you'll get thrown, this is the route your doctor is giving you. And because of that, and then because of what tests you have to do 
I know I'm being very vague, but it really just depends on your protocol and your outcome. So Mm -hmm. depending on your protocol and your outcome, your ethical decisions could be made very easily, Mm -hmm. you know, or your ethical decisions could be made very challenging and hard. And so it's kind of hard to say, how do you approach it until you actually go through it? Mm -hmm. And so I guess my advice would be wait until you go through it and kind of decide as you go, because say you, you know, make a certain decision your first round, but that first round didn't work. You have another chance and you might make a different decision your second round, you know? So, yeah. And I think one thing that helps with making those decisions, I mean, they're, they're really hard and they're very heavy, but if you and your husband can really be aligned and feel confident in the decision for your journey. I think what one of the things that makes the ethical decisions hard is like society and other people's like uh, views and opinions. And you just have to have confidence and know that like you've done the research, you have thought about it and sought clarity around it and, and feel like this is what makes sense for you to then like those outside voices won't make you feel bad. Because I think a lot of it's like guilt or shame or judgment from people that really aren't educated on it and don't understand. Totally. And you could even feel that way with people who are in the IVF journey. You know, you could feel judgment or shame with the decisions that they made and you're making them different, Mm -hmm. you know? So I I love that you said that, that it's really just you and your husband in this decision and try to block out the outside world and what they are telling you is Mm -hmm. the right decision or the right approach. Yeah. Not, not easy though. Yes. Yeah. We've loved being able to answer your questions. We hope we answered them well. Um, If y'all have more questions, obviously reach out. We'd love to try to be there for you and, just can't thank you all enough for tuning in to, to our first season of Never Alone. It's been great getting to know some of you through social media, and we'd love to hear from you. And we're working on season two. So if you have specific things that you want to hear about, let us know. But we hope that you can find joy this holiday season and that 2024 brings new things for each of you. And we will be back in late January with season two.